welcome to Mouthwash, TBD Conference's podcast with me, Paul Armstrong, creator and curator of TBD Conference and founder of Emerging Technology Advisory here forth. My guest today is Paula Sizek, Chief Research Officer at organizational design firm Noble, spelled N-O-B-L. Paula likes stories about systems, the how and the why people interact. Paula and the Nobel team are spread remotely across the world and helping companies figure out how to change their ways and directions, whether you're a team of five or 55,000. Paula loves to ask questions like, how can horse racing help leaders make better decisions? What can a secret 1940s government program teach us about innovation at modern companies? And why is it so hard for organizations to live up to their values? And how can we hold them accountable? Strap in for some hard truths and inspiration. It was a great chat, and you can find out more over at noble.io, N-O-B-L.io. Enjoy the show. Paula heads the research arm of Noble, named after Alfred Nobel, and they sit at the intersection of strategy and culture. Paula and the team work with over 80 clients in five continents and over two dozen industries in a variety of ways, but all surrounding change. I describe their work to people as turning tanker, uh, they're turner tankers, if that makes sense, for companies who are stuck on autopilot, really. Not just any clients either, big honking massive clients like Warner Brothers, Taco Bell, Capital One, Bayer Pharmaceuticals, Market, and loads more. Startups, but also large ones as well. From change management to assessing an organization's readiness, Paula uh, develops thinking on subjects around things like the future of work, but also productivity. Paula and the team have achieved some pretty impressive things for clients um, recently, like uncovering 15 million in new revenue. That would be nice, wouldn't it? Increased overall productivity by 27% for other companies and they've increased the work-life balance by 26% for others. They've also trained 500 global leaders to lead sustainable cultural change and a lot more besides. I'm excited to dig in how they do these things with massive companies, especially in the current climate. Paula, welcome to the show. How's your morning been so far? Uh, It's been action-packed. I actually started my morning from 8 to 11 today in workshops, so took took a quick stretch. Uh, And uh, yeah, now I'm just excited to, to be with everybody here today and talk a little bit about the future of work. Excellent, excellent. Um, well, this should be fun. Mouthwash isn't just me chatting with Paula, though. Um, I really want to hear your questions, so please do use the hashtag Mouthwash Show, or one word, and I'll do my best to get them into the show. Who knows, Paula might even go through the rest uh, afterwards and answer you directly. She is just that nice. Okay, where to begin? Uh, I think I've asked you this already, maybe, but let's start. What was the first thing that you thought of when you woke up this morning? First thing that I thought of... Um... Busy day, action-packed from the very beginning until all the way through the afternoon. So that's that's what I thought. So the first thing you thought of was the rest of your work day. Not exactly. For to be alive, I'm excited or anything like that. It was like, jam-packed day, let's get that. <laughs> uh, that's right. I eat, sleep, and breathe work. No. Uh, you know, it's <laughs> funny. We talk about, like, work-life balance um, and how it's honestly a lie, right? Like when you're, when you're always connected to your digital devices, it's really hard to separate, right? Let's be honest. Most people, you roll over in the morning, you turn off your alarm and you start checking your email, right? Or you're checking your Twitter feed, um, or your Slack channel, right? Uh, so, so it's just really hard to separate your personal life and your professional life because Mm. we're always on. God, yeah. I must admit, over the pandemic, I have really tried to sort of use my mobile less and less. Before we rock on, tell us a bit about um, Noble Collective, uh, what you and the clan do there day to day, if that makes sense. Yeah, of course. So I think you did a great intro. We're an organizational design firm. Really what we do, you know, tank changers, I think that's great. We make change possible. I think a lot of organizations, a lot of leaders and teams have changes that they want to make within their organization, but there's just so much in the way. It feels like, how, how are we going to make this tank move, right? Um, how can we possibly change from what we've always been doing and, and invent a new organization? And so that's what we do. We actually go in with companies. Um, we work side by side with them to identify what changes they want to make to how they're working, to the goals that they're trying to achieve. Um, and then we coach them through the process. So we actually build their capacity for change. We want to make people, we, we, we talk about it like change is a muscle, right? When we leave, we want people to have the skills and the confidence that they're going to be able to continue the process and take on new challenges after we're gone. What are you um, most proud of um, working on during the pandemic? During the pandemic specifically, I think one of the, the really fun things that we did was within nine days of the lockdown being declared, we actually launched a, a virtual conference. And I think we were one of the first organizations to do that since it was so fast. Like I said, nine business days. We had over 4,000 people register 
to learn about how to navigate through uncertainty, how to transform your organization so that you're prepared for remote work. It was fun because I think it gave people sort of a, a bright spot, right? Something to look forward to in the midst of a lot of change and a lot of uncertainty that was happening at that point of time. And it was also really fun internally because we really rallied together as a team. As you can imagine, like pulling in, I think we had well over like two dozen speakers. So, so organizing that within the span of two weeks was, was quite the challenge, but we, we managed to pull it off. And so that was a real high point for us. Nice. I think events are one of those things where a lot of people have um, floundered in some respects, but then also done an incredibly good job. Um, I know organising TBD, I decided to pre-record um, everything. And that was one thing that I think I'm, I, did, I did a smart thing there because we had a 9.2 satisfaction score. And I think when you have these sort of technical issues over things like that, it really can destroy the sort of experience for people. So yeah, kudos for doing that. And certainly as quickly as you did as well. Um, right, let's dive in. A future of work, rough subject, um, depends on where you are, how old you are, what privileges you experience. What do you think the next 24 months are really Really going to land for us generally speaking at the moment so great point i really like how you called out privilege we're all experiencing different things we did a state of work report where we looked back at 2020 in order to identify you know trends that are happening going forward and we really found that you know for for some people about 30 40 percent they were able to work remotely but even in September, about 70 people, 70% of people were either back to the office or they'd never left the office at all. So the idea that like, oh, remote work is entirely the future, um, I think for a lot of people that's wishful thinking. We're already starting to hear rumblings that some of the major tech giants are actually going to start requiring people to come back, not like, oh, it'd be nice, no, like requiring people to come back. And so I think that's going to be, of course, the, the biggest question is, um, are we coming back to the office? How are we adapting to this new normal? I think there's going to be a real challenge in that a lot of leaders in particular are going to want things to be business as usual, right? Going going back to what they were doing before without making major changes. But we're getting a sense that the people who are who are within the organization, the employees, uh, are are very much against that. They have gotten used to being able to have some flexibility from working from home. Uh, dress codes, like uh, we've had lots of people asking, like, are we still going to have a dress code? Do I actually have to dress up to go into the office? Um, <laughs> no, it's it's true. Like I, I think a lot of people have uh, abandoned that. There is there's a sense of you know we don't want to go back to that same level of of professionalism in that like, oh, I'm, I'm here to do my job. I'm a robot. And I, you know, I don't have a life outside of this. We don't talk about family. We don't talk about um, some of the challenges that we're facing in terms of, of caregiving or just stress. Um, I think people don't want to go back to that. So that I think is going to be the real tension. It is what, what do we do now? How much do we change? How much do we keep? Mm. Uh, I think a lot of people, I've seen reports that something like 30 to 40% of people are going to quit. They'll, they'll just quit their jobs if they're forced back into the office. Mm. So um, it'll, it'll be challenging. You've hit a few points which are going to be separate questions, sort of moving on. So I'll, I'll quickly um, nip off. I think what you're saying there is uh, people like the perks of working at home, but the job itself is fine. And I'm not 100% sure if people aren't realizing that actually, my job isn't just sort of how it makes me feel. It's sort of like, what am I actually doing? And I think a lot of people have realized it's it's how you do it is fine. And you can do that anywhere and that sort of thing. But actually, are they getting job satisfaction from their jobs? And I think that's why it's so high, that that number and that sort of thing. Yeah. And I, I will add, it's not just how I do the work or where I do the work. There is a question of that social aspect, right? Um, I think a lot of people do miss the opportunity to, to pop by a colleague's desk or, or have one of those hallway conversations or water cooler conversations. So, you know, I, I, there, there's definitely as many people want to stay home. I think there's also definitely a, a need and a desire to, uh, to also get away from, from home and get back to the office. So, you know, it's, it's across the board. I don't want to say it's a monolith by any means. 
Yeah, no, I take that point 100%. I think some people just, you want that break, you want that delineation, and other people are fine with not having that anymore. I think that's a really interesting sort of uh, moment that we're all going to have to sort of go through. I was actually in a co-working space today with a friend who just wanted a break. She goes, I just don't want to work at home today, you know, and that sort of thing. And I was like, yeah, sure, come on in. It's COVID secure and that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. um, I'm part of the TLA, Tech London Advocates um, Board, or rather Global London Advocates, actually, or Global Technology Advocates, to get it completely right. There you go. Um, it's a very new thing, still learning. Um, and um, I've been doing a lot of research on the future of work. And when we look at the spend of large management consulting firms, so I'm talking McKinsey, and that sort of stuff they're all pontificating about the future of work um mckinsey um actually has about 35 percent share of voice out there so my one of my hypotheses at the moment that i'm sort of working through is are we actually just seeing a future of work thesis from one or two companies or is it actually the truth that we're actually going to get you know remote working hybrid working and that sort of stuff you've mentioned already that a lot of people are forcing people to go back to the offices and that i'm now concerned that people aren't actually really forcing this future of work this utopia that we all wanted where we all work in our pjs and that sort of stuff or work from anywhere through only because we've now got this element of um you know well the report said you know and actually it's not necessarily going to be that for everyone so I'm biased in that I think a lot of the big consulting firms do nothing but pontificate, and they're not actually in the field making the changes. They sort of give you a deck and say, good luck. Um, but again, that's, that's my bias. Uh, yeah, I mean, we're definitely, seeing, we're, we're definitely seeing a split. And again, this comes down to who you are, where you are within the organization. I saw another survey where the vast majority, something like 80% of bosses, uh, want people to come back to the office, whereas it's it's just the opposite, right? The majority of people don't want to come back into the office. And so there is going to be a little bit of a power struggle. And let's be realistic. The way that most organizations are set up now, whatever the boss or the leaders say is what's going to go. There's going to be some people who are privileged, who either because they've got the money, they've got savings, connections, what have you, they have a job that can be done remotely, um, mm. they, they will be able to quit and they will be able to negotiate with their employers and say, well, I want to work here and these are the hours that I want to work um, and they'll be able to figure something out. Uh, and then there will be other people who have a job which involves more interaction, um, which has more like physical transactions, right, or, or manual components. Um, and they won't have as much of a choice. They will have to come back into the office. Um, and so, yeah, I think, again, it depends on where you are. It depends on how much power you have within your role, where you lie within the organization. Um, but it definitely won't be an across the board. This is, this is the one way. This is the one true future of work. There's going to be futures of work. Mm. Oh, that, I like that. That's, um, let, you've, you've raised an interesting point there already. I was going to talk about it a bit later, but let's talk about patriarchy for a second. A lot's been recently put out there about how the office benefits the patriarchy, and that's why a lot of these people are rushing back to it. And I think also um, a lot of the data that's out there is sort of suggesting that um, some bosses feel that they don't have a good enough handle on their organisation when it is spread out. Um, and I'm, I'm wondering, have you seen that with the organizations that you work with or anything that you've read? Um, and how do people fight that? Yeah, so great points. I think one of the studies that came out, they've been looking at Australia because Australia is already back to work, right? So they're sort of ahead of the curve. And yeah, what they're seeing is that essentially the more diverse your board, the more diverse your leadership, the more likely you are to be willing to consider different types of working, hybrid and remote work. Um, mm. So, so yeah, that is an, an excellent point. Uh, all right. Well, sorry. What was what was the second part of that question? I got I got distracted. Second point being, how, how do we do it? Yeah. Like, what's the advice um, for people if they think that they're in that position? So, the clients that we have worked with, we've been very fortunate in that most of the clients we've worked with have actually been able to. Uh, they, they transitioned pretty seamlessly to remote work, which is, by the way, another thing people are frustrated by. They, For years, people have been asking to work remotely, and they've got lots of excuses about why they couldn't do it. Suddenly, when they had to do it, companies actually found like, oh, this is not as challenging. 
as, as we thought, right? We were able to switch pretty much overnight. Um, so that's, that's a separate frustration. The real issue comes down to trust. The, the question is, you know, you, you can't monitor people. You, you can't see people necessarily butts in seats um, when people are working remotely. You're, you've transformed from managing one office to potentially dozens or, or even hundreds, essentially, of, of home offices. And so the question is, do you trust your employees? Are they doing the work? Are they producing what they're supposed to be producing? And there's ways to track this, right? Um, both, I would say, from an output and an outcome perspective. Uh, there has been an increase. I was just looking into this. There has been an increase in surveillance technology, right? We've definitely heard of organizations essentially requiring that people's cameras, their laptop cameras, be on the entire time so that they can actually see you are in front of your computer. Uh, you can look at things like keystroke recorders, and you can look at how many emails are being sent and, and calendars, right? There's, there are a lot of ways to increase employee surveillance, um, but that's just really scary. That those numbers are like butts and seats, right? Like, are people physically present? Uh, it doesn't necessarily mean that they're achieving the desired outcome, right? Are they doing the work that needs to be done? Uh, are they are they thinking about things in a creative, strategic, effective way? And so, if you're if you're focused too much on that. Um, you, you do miss out, right? Like you'll you'll undermine trust in your employees, and you won't be getting the the actual results that you need. Um, there's also plenty of studies showing that it's we tend to to rely on you know again presence and and putting in all those hours, so working extra hours. But we know, like every study will show that just because you're working longer hours doesn't result in better results, right? At at a certain point you max out and you're not going to be able to produce as much. You won't think as effectively. Your decision-making will get worse. So, so that's quote-unquote easy. It's easy to watch somebody in front of a computer. It's easy to monitor uh, keystrokes, but it's not necessarily effective. So what organizations should be doing is really focusing on those outcomes, building the trust, making sure that they have employees that they actually believe are doing the work, right? Even if they're not necessarily sitting in front of a computer, if they're not typing rapidly enough, um, they're still making the right decisions and producing the work that you need to uh, ideally uh, achieve your strategic goals. I think that's the key, isn't it? The output. And if that trust isn't there, then it probably wasn't there to start with. But that's an interesting point for a lot of people's businesses. Where does I mean, distrust comes from it's not innate. Usually people are quite trusting of people until, you know, historically they get shanked in the side or something like that you know from roman times um but we're, we're obviously living in very different times now trust seems to be on the wane for a lot of um industries and verticals and that sort of stuff when it comes to trusting your co-workers that's that's almost a fundamental how do people get that back even with hybrid workers because that's something i've read as well is that these bonds are going to be stretched from people the ones who are in versus the ones that aren't yeah there's there's definitely more siloization that's actually one of the things we've seen come out this year. It used to be at the beginning of the pandemic, people would still try and maintain those, those loose bonds, those loose connections with people. But the longer this pandemic has gone on, the longer people have worked remotely. Uh, even, even your most important networks, your most critical networks with colleagues uh, have fallen off a little bit. So this is going to be a problem. It's going to be something that, that teams need to be thinking about going forward. Uh, a couple of things that you can do to make sure you're, you're tending those relationships and, and building and maintaining that trust. One of the things that we talk about regularly is this idea of psychological safety, right? It is the, um, it's, it's the belief that you can take a risk in front of your colleagues. What we mean by risk is either maybe sharing, sharing some crazy idea that you have and you're not sure how to land, or it could be sharing bad news. It could be uh, we're not hitting our deadlines or we're, we're missing our numbers, something like that. Uh, and, and you can share those without fear of, uh, of being reprimanded, without fear of somebody shooting you down. There's some really simple ways that you can actually work to increase psychological safety, again, even remotely. One of the things that we like to do is a check-in round at the beginning of the meeting where everybody just goes around and says one sentence about what they're bringing with them to the meeting. Could be anything from like, hey, you know, like, like we started this call, like, oh, I've just, I've been thinking about work since I woke up this morning. 
or it could be, oh, I haven't had lunch yet. I'm hungry, right? Uh, oh, my kid's sick, so I might have to pop out and check on them halfway through the meeting. Just gives you a sense of, of the people that you're working with, makes them more human, um, puts them into context. It helps avoid miscommunication and, and the stories that we tell ourselves, right? If somebody pops out in the middle of the meeting, it would be easy to come up with this internalized story about like, oh, they're, I'm boring them or they don't care or wow, this person is a jerk when really, no, like they're just, they're just popping in to make sure their kid has lunch, right? So avoiding mm -hmm. those miscommunications, especially in remote, when you can't necessarily see people, um, it's harder to read body language. That's really mm -hmm. important. I keep hearing um, like, you know, horror stories and that sort of stuff, but also some really interesting things coming out of um, uh, the way, the new ways people are working and that sort of stuff. And one of the, the sort of things that always sort of floats about, I can't remember who said it for the life of me, but solutions can't come before a clear understanding of the problem. Um, and that's, I'm finding a lot of people, they're just literally going, how do you want to work? And not necessarily forming it around what the, what work needs to be done. Um, how do you think uh, people should start thinking what the future of work means for them in that sort of sense, like how they want to work? Oh, this is such a great question. And you know what? I actually, we haven't gotten this question a lot. So, so that's kind of fun. Um, we think a lot about purpose and we're a little skeptical when it comes to purpose, both, uh, you know, within organizations at large, um, it get it gets thrown around a lot. And I think it gets messed, you know, confused with like values and, and mission and vision. It's, it's not really clear we're sort of coming down to like, really just like, what do you, what do we believe? What do we hold in common? Like, what are we trying to achieve as an organization, as a, as a team? Um, and on that, it's also, what am I trying to achieve as an individual? I think there's been this, this push to, you know, do your, find your passion. If, if you find a job you love, you'll never work a day in your life. But really it's, it's thinking about what what is the role of work in my life and what am I trying to get out of it? Am I trying to advance my career at this point? Am I trying to just just pay the bills? Um, is this more of a social opportunity for me, right? Uh, there's, there's no right answer and it can change throughout your life. Um, so I would be thinking on an individual level, really what, is, what does work mean to me? What am I trying to get out of it? What am I willing to give to it? What am I hoping to get out of it? Um, so that's that's at the individual level. And then I think similarly at the organizational level, it's it's really trying to figure out um, what what's a creed? What's our our fundamental tenant that holds us together that we're trying to achieve? Uh, what are the trade-offs that we're willing to make to get there? What are we willing to give our people and what do we expect from them in return, right? Um, so so just thinking about what you're trying to get out of this, what you're trying to achieve, where are the overlaps, right? Where does where does it make sense? Um, what's the win-win scenario? Mm. Um, just going back to your earlier point about staff not wanting to sort of return home or they're comfortable at home. Um, mm. What advice do you have for them about negotiating returns and permanent changes? So one of the things that I would be thinking of is what work really needs to get done in a in-person setting, right? There's a lot of work that we do, which really doesn't need to happen in person. We would, in fact, argue that if you are using a screen in any way, shape, or form, you can probably do that remotely. Whereas if you're in person, you should probably banish screens entirely, right? And, and I know that sounds extreme, and obviously there's there's going to be some, some leeway in there. Um, but if you're meeting in person, it it should be because you're having a conversation with people, you're going through a debate, um, you're brainstorming or problem solving. It's something that really requires interaction. And I think at that point, screens are just a distraction. Whereas, again, there's a lot of work, uh, analysis, reporting, honestly, creation of, of reports, right? We can use Google Docs and collaborate remotely. We can use Slack to share information. Um, even some some learning and training basic things can be done remotely. Uh, so I would be thinking, if you're if you're going to make a case for this, um, really think through like what is the work that I can effectively do independently, and and this is why, right? Like here here's all of the things that I can do, and these these are the things where it would be good to be in person for, um, and and make a case based on that. Show how it's going to benefit them, the organization. Uh, 
because everybody really wants what's what's in it for them whether that's you your boss your organization everybody's everybody has has their own agenda um mm. so so really think about how it's going to benefit the organization why it makes more sense for you to be working in one way as opposed to the other just moving that on ever so slightly so a lot of the recent um, large around the future of work has really been the, the the nitty-gritty of what it means and a lot of companies facebook being one um have said well if you don't live in london i'm not going to pay you london waiting anymore so that means your pay would change which you know the, the pay is the fundamental for the job you know as fun as it all is you know people have mortgages and that sort of stuff to pay when it comes down to that sort of stuff um, that you know affected chances for promotion future earnings and that sort of stuff any advice for employees who are finding that their bosses are thinking in that sort of way yeah i would be looking at your kpis uh your your goals and what you're expected to achieve because they they might be different if you are in person versus if you're remote and if you are remote and you're being compared to or held to goals or kpis that your in-person colleague is also being held to you might fall short right and that that can be something as simple as uh, raising a hand for new projects, right? That could be something that comes up in a side conversation. Or if you're having a conversation after the meeting, right? Like you, you have a meeting and then everybody goes their different ways and one or two people meet up to discuss how we're going to, how we're going to actually make this work or, or decisions that need to be made on top of it. Um, you might be missing out on that. Um, and so I would really be thinking about like, how, how is my work going to be measured um, what are the gaps? What's going to be different about me versus an in-person employee? Um, are there are there things that we need to reevaluate? Are there things that I bring to the table as a remote worker, which actually have a benefit as compared to someone who who's not there? Right? It might even be something like, well, I'm in a different time zone, so I can actually take uh, like emergency calls later at night. Right? Like give give the team some some slack. They don't have to be up at 9 p.m. Um, because that's during my regular working hours. So really thinking through how you're going to be measured, um, how that compares to the in-person employee, and, and, and making sure you're not missing out on any any KPIs, any key indicators. Mm. When, it, when it comes to hybrid working, a lot of people are going adopting the hybrid, right, rather than remote and that. There are a few that you've gone fully remote and, and vice versa, but the majority seem to be acting for a hybrid. That's, you know, people rolling three days a week or uh, one week on, one week off or, you know, however they want to sort of slice it. You know, but it, there's some time at home, some time in the office. Are there any um, industries, verticals, companies in particular that are predisposed to the hybrid model of working, which you're not seeing adopted? You know, the, I want to say it was The Economist or McKinsey that just did a study on this. And it's, it's really, again, it's classist. Uh, the, the companies and the industries that can work more remote are the more like analytical reporting numbers, et cetera, kind of, kind of fields, right? So people in, let's say, banking and finance, it's really easy to, to switch to more of a remote workplace. Um, and as a result, you see, let's say, more developed countries, like the UK is actually a great example because it has so many organizations that are in finance, right? So it's a financial hub. So it's a lot easier for that economy to, to go more remote. And then on the other side of the spectrum, you'll have more developing countries um, where, quite frankly, most of the work is done in person, right? There's, there's some things which are always going to need to happen in person. Um, like if you're a cashier, right? We saw like restaurants and retail, right? Like those require an in-person presence. And again, a lot of those jobs tend to be lower, let's say, on the economic spectrum, um, more, more hourly workers, more early, uh, you know, early in their career people. Um, and so, so you do see this split. And then, of course, in between, um, you'll, you'll have more organizations that, you know, there's some work that can be done remotely and there's some that needs to be done in person. And so, like I said, that's, that is where you get the hybrid and that's where you think about like, well, what work really has to be done in person? Um, and what work has to be done or can be done remotely. Um, so it's not that there's any one particular industry that 
should be going remote that isn't, I think most organizations have some opportunity. Um, even, even, organi- even small teams, right? If you're a massage therapist, um, obviously the work is delivered in person, but you're still doing like bookings and customer service and ratings and bookkeeping. That can all be done remotely. Um, so it's, it's very much a continuum. And I think every organization needs to be thinking about where we fall and what realistically can be done remotely. Mm. Let, let's shift slightly to staff and people and that sort of stuff. You mentioned at TBD holding a retrospective is a really good idea for companies. Can you explain what, the, what these are for the people that weren't there and um, any top tips when doing them? Yes. So a retrospective is an opportunity to look back at the things that you've been doing and decide what you want to change about it, what, what's been going really well, what hasn't. We do this because when you when you want to build resilience, when you want to come back better, build back better as a team, uh, you need two things. You need stress. You need to be pushed to your limit. Uh, hopefully not over, but pushed to a limit. Uh, and I think we've all been there. And then you need time to recuperate and reflect. That's, that's your learning period. If you're constantly stressed and you never have time to reflect, if you never have time to think about what you want to do differently, uh, it'll never change. You'll always be in that really high stress state. Um, so, so retrospective, the easy way to do it is to pull together a bunch of people, 10 to 15 capped. Um, after that, it, it becomes a little unwieldy. But pick a project that you've done in the last three months and build out a timeline. What were the key milestones that occurred over, over the span of this project? Could be anything from like, well, we held a kickoff meeting to, um, oh, there was an email from the client which threw us into high alert, right? So thinking about those, those milestones. Uh, you want to keep them as neutral as possible. Don't make a judgment, just identify the milestones. Then what you want to do is, looking at those milestones, identify, okay, what were the high points? When did we really excel? When did it feel like we were all coming together and firing all, on all cylinders, and why? It doesn't help to say, like, oh, we had a great meeting, because you can't repeat great meeting. But if you can specify, we had a great meeting because the agenda was shared in advance, or we were able to discuss a really difficult topic and everyone felt heard, right? Those are things that you can repeat and spread throughout your organization. So identifying what's working really well. Then you want to identify, all right, what didn't work so well? Um, Again, being specific. If you say, like, meetings sucked, uh, it's hard to prevent that from happening. But if you say, the meeting didn't go well because only half the people showed up, right? Or because uh, we didn't get the information that we needed in time. That's something that you can fix. That's something that you can address. So you want to go through all the things that worked well, all the things that didn't go so well, and then pick one or two things that you want to try doing differently next time. Keep it simple. It's really easy to either double down on the things you do well or pick one thing that you want to try to avoid, right? What, what didn't go so well that you want to make sure never happens again? Um, just pick one or two of those things that you can implement immediately, like within the next one or two weeks, and try that. And then see if that's a success. Did it help? Did it hurt? Then move on to your next one, right? Just work your way down the list and improve slowly over time. Everybody wants things to just change magically overnight, but the reality is it's just it's just individual behavior change over time and it adds up and it adds up and it builds. And that's how you ultimately change the direction of a tanker. Do you think that's the best advice for leaders on getting that percentage of people that want to leave um, if they get a slightly better offer? Is that the is that the top thing they should do or is there other things? You know, that's really going to depend on on your people. There are going to be some people who just leave. Right. They're they're done. They're at the end of of their tenure at the organization. Mm. Um, And there's not a whole lot you can do to to keep them. Um, What you should do is make their offboarding experience pleasant, like recognize them for their contributions, because you never know. You never know if they're going to come back in the future with with new knowledge. And now they already know the organization. Mm. Uh, You don't know who they're going to talk to. So you want to make sure that you're, you're building a good employer brand, essentially, and that, that people say, like, yeah, I really had a good, you know, I, I appreciated my time at, at that organization. So some people you can't save, you can't, you can't hold on to them, um, but you still want to treat them well yeah. just for, uh, for, for those purposes. For the people who you may be able to, to retain, then, yeah, I think it does need to be a conversation about, you know, what's, 
what's not working here? What can we do um, to to make your make your job better? How do I become uh, a more effective, inclusive leader for you? Right? Like, wh- what is it that you need to do your best work? And see if you as a company can match that. Maybe you can't. Maybe you're just not at that position. Um, but but yeah, if there if there are opportunities to retain people, absolutely have that conversation. When it comes to um, the, the world of work and the future of where it's all going, I read a lot about AI. I am predisposed to see those two letters and, you know, just read stuff at the moment. But very little um, is always there in the way of actionable insights. Are any clients asking you about AI and what it can be used for now and post-pandemic, or is it still too early? You know, that's a really good question. We haven't had many clients talking about AI I have seen an article that just came out, and we actually wrote about this years ago, so it was, it was fun to be ahead of the trend, um, talking about how actually maybe maybe leaders are the ones who need to be uh, automated, right? When we talk about the some of the key roles of leadership, it is things like decision-making, right, uh, and, and sharing information. Some of those things could, you argue, uh, you could argue, could be automated, right? A, an AI might be more effective at making an impartial decision based on data. Um, they're, they're certainly less likely to be swayed by who the, who the information is coming from or, or politics or anything like that. Um, and let's be honest, they're cheaper. AI would be a lot cheaper than a CEO or, you know, your entire, uh, you know, your, your leadership team. So there's, there is a push um, for for making the leaders of the organization actually uh, become AI, but but realistically, I don't see that happening in the near future. Um, it's it's a fun thought experiment, but I I think people really need to focus on on the people that they're working with now, right? And there are things that can be automated, uh, but so often people want a tool. They want something which is a silver bullet, which you can implement and get to the right decision. And it doesn't work that way. The world is messy. The way we work is messy. People are messy. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it, it, it can be really difficult. Uh, don't, don't rely on a tool to solve all your problems is what I would say there. One area that I know AI and the world of work has fallen into um, issues very quickly is hiring. That's certainly one that's a mess now because of the pandemic. People are either out of work, they're looking to change. The amount of CVs and candidates and resumes that people are sort of having to sift through are enormous. I've been through those tools myself and I can tell you none of them do a very good job of helping you make the best decision. And all of them have issues around bias, whether it's the way things are worded, and that sort of stuff this all leads to a nice diversity question um the pandemic's obviously not affected everyone equally as i mentioned before how do we make uh the future of work more diverse uh so i'll I'll say first of all i don't think anyone has uh the perfect answer to this (laughs) unfortunately um because it's a very complicated topic but i think it is an extremely important conversation i think that's really come to the light in in the last year Oh, it, it's true. We saw, you know, um, double the rates for African-Americans and Hispanics in the United States, also also Asians. Um, I don't have the data on that internationally. We were just looking at the U.S. Um, so, yeah, like higher unemployment rates, longer to get hired back. It's it is definitely an issue. Um, how do we address that in the future of work? I think it is across the board. I think we need to be thinking about Hiring, right? Like, like you said, it's very biased. There are some organizations that we're seeing which are dealing with this by actually getting rid of essentially the hiring process entirely, and it's a first come, first serve basis. Like, literally, you write your name on a list, and when a job opportunity uh, appears, uh, they call you and they try you out. It's it's an essentially, uh, you know, you you work there for three months. They pay you, obviously, it's, it's a job, and they train you. Mm. Um, and and they've actually found that has no worse results and no worse turnover than when they were hiring. So you just saved yourself a lot of time and money with all the with the recruiting expenses and the hiring effort um, for essentially the same result. 
so so that's one way it's it's like i said first come first serve so hiring is really important um then you need to be thinking about within the organization okay we've hired people um how do we make sure that we are being inclusive and we are deliver you know we're, we're an equitable organization um how do we make sure that we are promoting people on a fair basis? Uh, do we need to have uh, employer resource groups or programs so that people have an opportunity to feel included? Um, even something like who speaks up at meetings, right? How do we make sure that we're creating equitable opportunities for everybody to participate? Um, it's, it's, it's a lens, really. You need to be thinking about everything within the organization um, and, and making it a more, a more just organization. And I, and I want to make clear, this isn't just a nice thing to do. This isn't just the right thing to do. Like all the data shows that if you have a more diverse organization, you are going to make more money. You're going to be a more effective organization in the long run. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's the right thing to do, but it is also uh, like monetarily the most effective thing to do. Um, and I'll, I'll be the first to say, Nobel, we're not, we wouldn't, we wouldn't want to position ourselves as like the experts on DEI. We love bringing in partners who are experts, um, and, and making sure we have that lens. In fact, we're working with some DEI experts internally to make sure that all of the tools and the processes that we're developing, um, are equitable and inclusive, right? We want to make sure that, that we're setting the groundwork and really baking that into everything that we do. But it's, it's a process for sure. Mm. Okay, I've got a few more questions, then I've got to jump um, into Desert Island Tweets. Right, um, it's a long one, so bear with it. The World Economic Forum says that skills people need in 2025 are the following. Analytical thinking, innovation, active learning and learning strategies, complex problem solving, critical thinking and analysis, creativity, originality and initiative, leadership and social influence, technological use, monitoring and control, technology design and programming, resilience, stress tolerance and flexibility, reasoning, problem solving and ideation. It's a pretty long list and a pretty wide ranging one. When it, if we're all leaders, you know, we're starting to assess our business needs, where do we start on that list? How do we start um, mark people? Is that the right way of doing it? Is the future of work just, you know, people being scored all the time? Where, where do we lead on that? Sort of? Oh, yeah, that's, uh, that's a nice list to have. <laughs> um, so look, I think we can start by saying, not everybody is going to have all of the strengths at once. Some people are going to be better at other things than other people. Um, and it's better to double down on your strengths than to try and fix your weaknesses. So let's let's just start from there. Um, a couple other things that I would be thinking is, let's make sure that we have a growth mindset as to a fixed mindset. Uh, we're human beings. We love taking tests and personality quizzes, which say like, oh, well, I'm strong like this, or I'm a carry, or I'm a Libra, or like wh whatever. Fill in, fill in whatever, whatever you are, whatever your strengths are. Um, but I think it's really important to not get people pigeonholed um, and to have an open mind and say, you know, okay, maybe maybe you don't necessarily have this skill set now, but if it's something that you're interested in, it's something that you can grow and build on, right? You can develop those skills. Um, so I think I think having the right mindset in terms of I can develop my people, they're not fixed. It's not that this is the way they are and there's, there's nothing that can change it. Um, I think that's the first really important thing to have. Um, the next thing on a very practical level that you can do, I've, I've seen this, is just do a skills inventory. Um, identify what it is that you need done on, on a regular basis within your organization. So that could be anything from, you know, if you're at an advertising agency, we need like a photographer to if you're, you know, an accounting firm, well, we need like analysts and bookkeeping and, and uh, we, you know, we've got to have controllers. Um, so really just go through and think about like, what are the key skills that we need to do our jobs properly? And then you can actually go through and have people indicate um, their, their essentially strengths and interest levels on those. So some people might say like, hey, I'm really strong at A, B, and C. I'm interested in growing in uh, one and two, and I have no interest whatsoever in doing X, Y, and Z, right? So letting people sort of self-diagnose and identify, again, um, what they're already good at and where they want to grow. 
Um, this is helpful because not only does this tell you, oh, like I have, I have some opportunities to develop people um, and this is how they want to improve and this aligns with what I'm trying to achieve. It'll also identify gaps, right? If you see like, wow, I have a lot of people who are strong in column A, but I have like only one or two people who are strong in column B and this is something that we're planning to grow strategically as an organization. Uh, I need to either develop people, I need to hire people, we need to consider outsourcing this. Um, so just from a practical level, going through and doing that skills inventory um, is, is a good place to at least get started. I think that one of the sort of undertones of everything that I'm hearing through your answers and sort of your work is trust. And I feel that um, a lot of the businesses that are out there on all sides of the Atlantic, one thing they're suffering from is a lack of trust in their people, but also not just that, but also a lack of trust that they can find the right answers or that they are capable and that sort of thing, which begs the point of like, why did you hire these people, you know? And right. sort of the, the, um, the focus on retraining, reskilling, and upskilling always seems to be second point. It, there's a there's a short termism um, infection that's going on, I think, in the world of work, which is somewhat economic, but also because people love a drama, I think, and they don't necessarily like to think long term because sometimes they're wrong and that sort of thing. When it comes to um, longer term strategy and that, what um, advice do you have for leaders and listeners that they? the the real future of work information and not just the world McKinsey and co think we're all headed for. So this is great. We've actually been working on an approach to strategic planning. We call it adaptive planning. And our philosophy right now is that you're actually going to be wrong, right? Like organizations spend a lot of time and a lot of money, like the first three to six months of the year, coming up with these grand plans for the next three years. And then all too often, they just, they create the deck, they share it, everybody goes rah, 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 and then no one looks at that ever again. They just go off and do their own thing. Um, so we think there needs to be more of a, a process. Again, that idea of time for reflection, right? Um, of, of trying something out, having let's say shorter term goals, like maybe quarterly goals and coming back and reflecting on them, um, on, on a quarterly basis, right? Like, Hey, we said we were going to do this in three months. Did we do it? What did we learn? How do we need to change? Um, because you're going, you're going to be wrong, right? I mean, uh, who, what organization in their 2019 five-year plan had pandemic, Right. Nobody had pandemic planned for 2020. And yet everybody had to scramble and figure out how to adapt to it. Um, so we would really encourage building that muscle of regular reflection, of, of adapting to changes that you're seeing in the market, what you're seeing within the organization, um, and, and actually being a little bit more humble in, in not trying to predict 5, 10, 20 years out from now, um, in, in just being just ahead enough so that you can course correct uh, and move forward. The, our, our rule would be like, don't, don't really try to go longer than three years. Three years is reasonable, um, but anything beyond that, you're just sort of looking into a crystal ball. Yeah. Two finally really quick questions. So um, I, I think that leads on nicely. Is like, is that what a labor force that's resilient to technological, financial, health and other shocks looks like? Companies that are sort of willing to not plan endlessly, um, and and essentially invest in their people. I mean, yes. To, you know, the it, organizations are people. That that's really what it comes down to. It's just people coming in to make decisions and to try and work together and ultimately communicate. Like that's at the end of the day what we do. It is me expressing what I'm trying to do and you expressing what you're trying to do and us trying to figure out some way to do it together. That's mm. that's what it is. It's an organization. Um, we're all just trying to come together to take down some some bigger goals. And one final, um, slightly off topic, but co-working um, had a big focus pre-pandemic. And obviously, we've seen some shut, some, you know, not so shut and some obviously not, I've not heard of many people building and that sort of stuff. Um, what advice do you have for the ones that are open and reopening? For the co-working spaces themselves, like the organizations or people who are in those co-working spaces. Nice that you delineated. Let's go both. Okay. Um, so look, I think what we've been hearing about is more satellite offices, right? So if people are working remote, 
uh, like your friend, right? They just want to change the scene, and so they'll pop into a to a co-working space. Um, so I think that will be an opportunity to have like smaller satellite offices. If you have, um, if you're a large organization, but you have like a hub, let's say of, of 20 employees in one location, you might want to take some space um, so that they can come in for those brainstorming for those activities that need to be in person. So that's an opportunity for the co-working spaces as well as something that employees can be thinking about. Um, of course, I think the immediate concern is is safety, right? Like, are they taking the necessary precautions to make sure this, this doesn't become a Petri dish? Um, similarly, I think you'll see a move away from open offices. People have realized that's just a great way to spread disease. Um, so, so immediate concern is, is making sure it's safe um, longer term, it is providing a variety of options so that people can work effectively no matter where they are. I think that's the key, isn't it? It's um, helping people do their best work wherever they are. And whether that's you buying a new screen or a chair or giving them a key to a co-working thing, that's, that's, the, that's the future of work in my book, is being that flexibility, but also having the procedures back at base to help people. Because at the end of the day, you hired them and you want them to do a good job. <laughs> and I think exactly. It, it feels like a lot of the work that I'm reading, it doesn't help people take first practical steps on a lot of this stuff. So I can't thank you enough for being so candid and sort of giving people, you know, real practical steps to sort of, um, you know, pu push things forward, as it were. Um, right. It's time for Desert Island Tweets. I'm very um, anxious. I don't want to go over the hour because I'm very respectful of people's time or try to be. Um, it's part of Mouthwash where we pick a tweet that's changed the guest mind or a way of thinking in some way. And Paul has chosen the tweet that I put in the nest by Ellen K. Powell. Powell? Is that how you say her name? I'm not sure. Um, Paula, why this one? You know, uh, I think to your, to your point, right, like people don't know where to start. They just want practical things. I think it's really important. So many times we've been in rooms with leaders who don't know where to start or they're like, well, we'd like to change things, but we can't. We want us to just sort of shake them and be like, you're the leaders. Y you set the tone. If, if you can't change this organization, nobody can. And so I do think it is really important that you, you get comfortable with being uncomfortable, that you are willing to take a risk um, and truly lead the organization. People are going to look to you. So, so model your, the behavior that you want to see. Reward the behavior that you want to see. Um, start somewhere. Start small. Um, but it's better to, to start um, Try and, try and make it, if you fail, where it won't blow the company up. We call it safe to fail. Um, but, yeah, so find somewhere to start um, and, and learn and grow from that. Thanks for listening. Find out more about Mouthwash and the next season over at mouthwashshow.com. Mouthwash is recorded live on Twitter Spaces before becoming the podcast you've been listening to. Thanks to Ecology for planting a tree for every listener and Shell for sponsoring the show. Let me know if you're enjoying Mouthwash so far by leaving us a rating and a review. Remember to subscribe to Mouthwash wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss any of the upcoming episodes featuring activists, AI experts, Silicon Valley royalty, Pulitzer Prize-winning journalists, and a whole lot more besides. See you next time, and remember, always start or end your day with a little mouthwash.